God is with great thankfulness that we once again woke up this morning under your grace, under your mercy. Thankful that even though we have rebelled against you and sought to deny the authority and the kindness of our Creator, you and your great mercy have called us changed hearts that now want to serve you and want to please you and want to do what we were created to do, which was make much of Jesus. Father, I ask that you forgive us the times this week where we have fallen back into the old man. Thank you that you have provided for us in Christ grace upon grace upon grace that we are forgiven washed, cleaned, and that in Him we now are as loved by you as much as you love Him. What a profound statement that is. What a profound truth that is that you've communicated to us through your word that as you love Christ, you love us. And that should mean something to us every day, that we wake up knowing that we're part of a family, that we are considered sons of God, we who are rebels against God. And that should compel us, not out of dread, but out of joy, to live and be who we are in Christ. And we thank you that in Him alone we have these benefits, these blessings, these truths accounted to us. There's nowhere else. And Lord, as we go over this next topic of Solus Christus in Christ alone this morning, I pray that you would communicate that to our hearts, that you would cause us to be zealous, to love Jesus more, and to glory in the beauty of your grace. That we would seek to reflect it around us. The idea that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And we're a bunch of chiefs in here, knowing who we are apart from Christ and thankful who we are in Christ. So would you help us to be ministers of reconciliation, seeking peace, And I pray, Father, that you would give us fruit in that area, that we would be um, able to see the results of the proclamation of the gospel to each other and to the world outside. We thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are uh, at the end of the month, and we've been um, working through once a month kind of a topical discussion on uh, this series has been on what's called the five solas of the Reformation. Yeah, I think there are some handouts on the, on the divider there. The five solas of the Reformation. So far we've gone through uh, Scripture alone, 
that we are saved on the basis of, uh, by God's, uh, let's see, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Remember the other? So it's, Christi, it's uh, in, through, in Christ alone and to the glory of God alone. So there's five heralds of the Protestant Reformation that were in response to Roman Catholic theology that would agree with these things being present, that Scripture's good, grace is there, faith is cool, Jesus is, makes a great artwork, you know, and, and that God needs to be glorified. So all of that's there. The significant difference in each of those heads of doctrine, each of those points of doctrine, is the word alone. Because without that word alone, it's grace and, scripture and, faith and, Christ and. God gets glorified, but something else does too, right? Is Christ sufficient? And this is where it really comes down to the core issue. What happened at the death of Christ? What went on there? This week we're looking at uh, sola Christo or solus Christus. It's been translated different ways, but for our purposes, we're looking at Christ alone. Um, we've discussed already kind of the concept of leaky grace. Do you remember this when we were talking about the, the grace alone part? The Catholic idea that you're infused with grace at your baptism, which is a, you get wiped on the forehead and suddenly grace is there. Um, and throughout your life, when you sin, you're like a leaky bathtub, right? You've got some grace, you sin, and some of it leaks out. So it has to be reinfused through uh, different rites, penance, um, the Hail Marys, indulgences, buy you some merit on the cheap. Um, so it's filled in. So there's this constant leaking of grace in Roman Catholic theology. The ultimate issue is not one of necessity. They all say, all, all Roman Catholics would agree, or at least the ones who are serious about what their theology says, uh, that we need grace, faith, Christ, but it's one of sufficiency. So your first blank there would be sufficiency. For those of you who are inclined to write down such things. Sufficiency. And the fundamental difference between Catholics and Evangelicals is related to the death of Christ. In Roman Catholic theology, the death of Christ is not sufficient to atone for our sins. What happened at the cross is not enough. Uh, they'll say that Christ died for our sins, this abstract thing, but they don't say that Christ died for sinners, a very concrete thing. Actual people. Christ's work on the cross won an infinite amount of merit or grace, so there's a treasury of merit in heaven. It's a very, very full bathtub. And you can access that merit through doing things like attending a mass. Right? Salvation is only possible, but it is not completed. We need something more than just the cross. This leads to, well, what does that lead to? Was that neat? If the cross is not enough, if it's not finished, our works. it leads to our works. We're filling in some, with something else. 
Fill it in with something else, and that's a lifelong process. I've got a leaky bathtub. If you have uh, a leaky bathtub, you always have to do additional resupplying of the water, right? I guess if you're inclined to keep your bathtub full all the time, that analogy does fall at some point. But One area of Catholic practice that provides a great demonstration of their distrust of the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection is the Mass. Have any of you ever attended a Catholic Mass? Does a funeral count? Uh, well, that's... If a, mass if a Mass was included, yeah. Yes. It's very highbrow, isn't it? It feels very... It's weird. Religious. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of ritual. There's lots of... of um, I don't know function and this happens here and this happens and this these words are happening here and you've got to repeat this and do this and kneel and stand and kneel and stand it's an exercise and a religious service all in one um, have you ever heard the term transubstantiation what does transubstantiation mean something interesting happens Okay, something happens in communion. The bread becomes what? The actual flesh of Christ. The actual body of Christ. And the cup becomes what? Incidentally, who's the person who drinks the cup? During communion? During the Eucharist. The congregation didn't touch the cup. The priest is the only one that drinks the cup. And that's a significant issue. Who's the church? In Catholic theology, the priests and the hierarchy are the church. The people are mere add-ons. So the, the, blo the blood is in the cup, actually, and the body is in the bread, actually. Uh, when... Um, it physically changes into the body and blood of Christ. It becomes Christ sacrificed again on the Roman Catholic altar. If the cross isn't enough, we need a consistent, perpetual, ongoing sacrifice of Christ to keep that merit going, right? I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the natural outcropping of that idea? I put, a, I put a quote in there uh, by, on your handouts. Catholic theologian John O'Brien, in his book, The Faith of Millions, just, it's a long quote. I think it's worth reading, because I, I, you know, we have this, well, Catholics are just another denomination. Listen to this, and I want to I get your reaction to this, okay? He says, when the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration. He reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from His throne, and places Him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power, the priest calling Christ down off His throne and putting Him on the altar, it is a power greater than that of saints or, and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. 
Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man, not once, but a thousand times. He goes on, and I will too. He goes on. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Of what sublime dignity is the office of the Christian priest who is thus privileged to act as the ambassador and the vice-regent of Christ on earth. He continues the essential ministry of Christ. He teaches the faithful with the authority of Christ. He pardons the penitent sinner with the power of Christ. He offers up again the same sacrifice of adoration and atonement which Christ offered on Calvary. No wonder that the name which spiritual writers are especially fond of applying to the priest is that of Altar Christus. For the priest is and should be another Christ. That bothers me. Does that bother you? Question. Yes. Is this one of many different views of the Catholic ritual, I guess? Or is this like the one and only? Well, let me read to you from the Catholic Catechism. Um, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. So what happened on Calvary and what happens at, at their Eucharist, they claim is one single sacrifice. It's not enough, the cross. It has to happen again and again. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross, only the manner of the offering is different. So it's the same, they're saying it's the same thing. I'm sorry, Eucharist? Eucharist is their term for what we would call communion, okay. but they call it Eucharist. It's, a, it's similar in form in that there's bread and wine, but it's very different in meaning. So I'll use their term for that. Why don't we just worship the priests then? They do. They, well, yeah. more and the saints. More rigorously, I guess. Yeah. Uh, he goes on, it goes on in the Catholic Catechism. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. And both of those quotes are from the Council of Trent, which is current Roman Catholic theology. And the Council of Trent was a counter-Reformation council by the Catholic Church to battle the wild boar that was in the vineyard that was Martin Luther. The Reformation was on, and they had to respond to it. It took them 50 years to get here, but they were, they were there. Yeah? I was going to add to what he was asking, that like, most of the Catholic doctrine is pulled from the Council of Trent. That's like their most solid, I guess... Uh, their most recent pronoun pronouncement of that stuff. Uh, recently, like, I don't know, 
past 20, 30 years, Catholic theology's gotten real loose, and like a lot of them don't really hold to it anymore. Just like evangelical churches have gotten real loose with their the our theology. So I mean, it depends on who you talk to. Your average Catholic will probably not know this. Yeah. I mean, to be honest. The average person in the pew is not going to know. This is just what mom and dad grew up doing. They, don't, they haven't really studied. They haven't put together what is being said in the catechism when they go through it. They're just there. Well, and when we were going to go, we went to a Catholic wedding because one of your best friends is Catholic. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known that based on what they believe was going on in the Eucharist to abstain from that if, if Kevin hadn't told me this is what they believe is happening and you're kind of participating or agreeing with that if you take part in it. And so and Yeah. Yeah, so it's not something that they hold science and say isn't exactly it doesn't exactly this isn't as communicated in this service. Right. But it's what it, but it's what those who know Catholic theology and promote Catholic believe and, and trust to be so. And so this is the official Catholic doctrine. Um, so yes, there's a looseness among the laity about what we believe. What well, my sister, for example, is, is Catholic and doesn't hold to a lot of the things that that uh, the Catholic Church promotes. To which I say, then why be there? But that's Another issue entirely. So those are both quotes from the Council of Trent. Um, and that is currently official Roman Catholic doctrine. Why do Catholics... Did you have something you want to... Sure, sure. Where it says he pardons the penitent sinner, so they're saying that in, is that true in Catholicism they also believe that the priest can pardon, right? Absolutely. So, and that strikes me because... Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a a view that the priest is another Christ. Alter Christus is, and that's long term. Right. You kind of see logically how it all flows. Oh, I've got to go to confession. If if I'm a leaky bucket. And if my merit, my salvation, my lifelong quest to be right with God is tied to the rituals of the church because they dispense merit, then this all makes sense. It's a logical progression. It is. It's a presupposition that determines all things. The church dispenses merit. So you have this treasure of merit that everyone is striving to get their little pellets a month on. Um, To which Martin Luther said, if the Pope really loved us, he'd break open the bank and give it to everybody. Why wouldn't, if you truly were an altar Christus, (laughs) he would be like Christ and break open the bank and give it to everyone. Because this is a control thing. Part of it is we need to build St. Peter's Cathedral. Indulgences on the cheap. We're opening up the bank. We're, we're opening the spigot a little bit on the treasury of merit. It's a, it's a control thing. Yeah. Um, uh, just on the quote and the catechism, how do they get around, I mean, 
Isn't that Hebrews where it says he uh, down once for all? He we're going to go there in just a second. We'll go there so in just a second. Okay. You're right. But see, here's the thing. The church, again, we're back to sola scriptura. That's why it's so important. If the church determines what, Hebrew, what the author of Hebrews meant, which they will not say is Apollos. They're wrong. Uh, if, if the church determines what the author of Hebrews meant, then they can say, oh, but that's this or that's that. The, 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 you're reading it wrong, you little I, untrained. My grew up in the Catholic Church. They never read their Bible because right. they didn't feel like they were capable of reading their Bible. Right. Because and, the church would tell them what it if says. She, if she had a question, she said, well, I know you're Baptist, so I know y'all read your Bible, so what, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember. I've told y'all this. I've told y'all this story before. I at the at the wedding um, dinner, the reception dinner that we had the night before for my friend who's Catholic, the priest that was doing the ceremony the next day is also a friend of mine from college days, and I would have never thought he'd gone priest. But anyway, he did, and he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. Uh, but we were given the I was best man in the wedding, so I had to do the blessing thing, you know. Which <laughs> I'm in a room full of Catholics, <laughs> and I am hyped up on Luther right now. I mean, I'm just hyped up. And I've been reading through, you know, Here I Stand and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, here we go. So I'm in a room full of Catholics. And I, 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 did, I, had, I was cage state Protestant or something. Anyway, so I, I, I just kind of calmed down a little bit. And I did this. I had a prepared blessing I was going to do. And I ended it with that, that benediction at the end of Second Corinthians with, um, you know, the, the, the love of God, the grace of Christ, and the, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Like that. It's kind of the way I uh, be with you. And I hope that communicating that to the, to the couple to be married the next day. And uh, the, the priest was sitting across the table from me. And, he, and when I said that, he leaned over to one of his parishioners and he said, That's scripture he's quoting. <laughs> As if that was this huge thing. That's scripture he's quoting. And I, I mean, I just let, I mean, what am I going to do? They're not, I don't know if it's allowed. I think it's just. They don't care. Because the, the church is going to interpret. We may get it wrong, so we'll let the church tell us what to do. <laughs> yes, they did. But they'll never admit that. After the Council of Trent, and in the Council of Trent, actually, they, they canonized, I guess you want to say it that way, additional Maccabees and other, other books like that. It's like in the 1600s, I want to say, because it was after, uh, well, no, 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 it's late 15s, um, that, they, that they finally said, oh, we've always recognized, well, then nobody recognized that in 1500 years, and then, but they said, we're going to recognize these, because some of the phrases in those books give support to some of the doctrine, like the prayer for the dead and stuff like that, that are in those books. The reformers, I, I, think, uh, I think they had like, there was a pulsing vein on the side of their heads when they read that these books were being considered canon by the Catholic Church because they're ridiculous. Never been done before. Uh, some of it is nice reading from <coughs> historical. Maccabees is, a, is good historical stuff. Never seen as the voice of God speaking through uh, the writers of the Bible. Ne never, not, any, not any close. And, and the thing that's fun with that is actually reading um, like one of the Gospels and then reading some of these uh, extra books, you can just tell the quality of it is so, dis is just different. 
And there's some very helpful patristic <clears throat> books like uh, The Shepherd of Hermas and um, uh, anyway, so there's one of them, and the, the Didache is another. That there, there were manuals they did in the second century. They're, they're good historical books. They're not necessarily heretical to read them or anything. I think that's good to do that. But you can just tell it tastes differently. I mean, that's all I can say. It tastes different than, than actual Scripture. My sheep know my voice. That's what that comes down to. And so by them putting this in there, they're doing it to bolster some of these false uh, doctrines. All right. Why do Catholics think this is necessary? Why do they think this is necessary? To call, to have the king of heaven and earth bow his head and come down on the Roman altar every Sunday and Saturday nights from 6 to 7 uh, at the local Catholic church in Flint, Texas. Because he, what he did once was not eternally sufficient. It's a sufficiency thing. Is he enough? Is Christ enough? Catholics must continually apply Christ's merits to themselves because his death only produced a treasure of merits. Secondly, the application of that merit is mediated to people mediated to people only through the ritual activity of the priesthood. Therefore, human salvation is inescapably tied to the Roman Catholic institution. You saw this in church history when you had uh, a John Huss rise up and say, this is blasphemy, we're not doing this. They excommunicated Huss. They told the city that he was in, the town that he was in, that if you um, do not uh, give us Huss or if you do not repudiate Huss, we will withhold merit from you. We will withhold the mass from you. You will be damned. That was the threat. And in that mindset, if you've been uh, born and raised in the, in the understanding that the church is what's going to save us, that's very compelling. That's the view. And so that was the threat that they did. So if, if I deny that salvation is received by faith alone, I am denying that Christ's death was complete. The Roman Catholic understanding of church is directly dependent on its understanding of the gospel. To which the Reformers said, Solus Christus, Christ alone. Here's a quick response by Calvin. We dream not of a faith which is devoid of good works, nor of a justification which can exist without them. The only difference is that while we acknowledge that faith and works are necessarily connected, we, however, place justification in faith, not in works. What does that do to the priesthood? That takes the power away from them, and it rests on the faith operating in the individual believer. Christ saves sinners. He died for sinners, and their faith in trusting in what he's done saves them, not depending on, did I come to Wednesday night service? Did, did I stay for the fifth Sunday potluck and had right Christian community? That's not what saves us, although it is a, well, anyway. <laughs> we're Baptists, and so we're not, we're, marriage doesn't come through casseroles. It's all right. But casseroles come anyway. That, but casseroles come because of grace. I'm just going to say that. Right. How this is done is, is easily explained, Calvin says, if we turn to Christ only 
to whom our faith is directed and from whom it derives all, and all means all there, all its power. Why then are we justified by faith? And Calvin says, because by faith we apprehend the righteousness of Christ, which alone reconciles us to God. And that's in his Institutes, book three, if you are so inclined to read it. When all you have is Scripture alone, where does that leave you? And Tammy rightly thought, Hebrews. <laughs> the response to this is so clearly taught in Hebrews. So turn quickly to Hebrews 9. We're going to look at that chapter real quick. It's only um, 28 verses. Real quick. Uh, so as we're looking at it, I want you to be thinking through what are all the specifics involved in the Old Testament sacrifice that the author of Hebrews pulls out here in chapter 9? Let's look at, uh, at, at verses 1 through 10 here. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared in the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now. We cannot now speak in detail. We spoke in great detail of these things when we went through Leviticus. So if you're really wanting to check that out, that it's on the internet. It's about a year's worth of stuff. All right. The preparations having thus been made, the priests, so all the elements are there, right? All the stuff is there. You got all the gold, the lampstands, everything's there. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. The, the first section being the holy place, which they went all the time. Um, but into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without, taking the, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of the reform of Reformation. Sorry, <laughs> time of Reformation. So what's going on? He's making a comparison between what happened in the old covenant, and it's it's greater. Hebrews is all a, Jesus is greater than book, right? So we're looking at the old covenant. What's wrong with the old covenant? Temporary. It's temporary. Symbolic. It's symbolic. It's symbolic. But what's deficient? It can't, it can't perfect the conscience of worshipers. Why? It's not enough. It's not sufficient. They have to do it again and again and again and again. It's never enough. Look at verses 11 through, uh, through 23 here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, past tense, that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What's the significance of blood in this passage? In the, in the Holy of Holies, they bring in the blood of the bull, right? The big, the big sacrifice goes in. That's once a year, the Day of Atonement. We went through that in Leviticus 16, 17, that area. What is significant about Christ? He's eternal. He's eternal. What is He doing? It's His blood. So what is the Catholic ideology here? If it's Christ's blood, that's... He's God. Right? His sacrifice, His worth of His life is eternal. That's why we needed the God-man. Right? I can't die for myself. It wouldn't be enough. I'm still not sufficient. Even my own blood would not be enough for the sins I committed yesterday. But Christ is eternal. And His sacrifice is eternal. And there's no need for anything else. It is... <laughs> well, it is, it is a perpetual fountain. God to be worth enough for the for the sins of many, mm -hmm. and he had to be fully man to be an appropriate sacrifice. Right. Whereas if he were one perfect man, fully man, mm -hmm. he could die for maybe one other man. Right. But he had to be fully God and fully man to be an appropriate sacrifice that was worth, worth for the sins of. Yeah. And we say that his blood was sufficient for all, efficient for those that he calls. That it's effective for those who, who believe and trust. Okay. Um, look at verse 24, uh, 23 through uh, uh, 24, uh, 28, sorry. Thus it was necessary. Oh, wait, hold on. Did I mess up? Yeah. I messed up. Where did I stop? I'll stop at 15. That just seemed odd to me that I would skip that whole section because that's a very important section. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so, so that... I'm sorry, did I say A? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Incidentally, that whenever I'm doing wills, people always say, I don't want my will done because I know that, that if I do that, then, then I'll, I'll probably die. That's not true. That's a, anyway. A will is only effective at death, 
but it doesn't mean that you're going to die just because you have one. Okay. Since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. Remember, we went through all of that in Leviticus. And all of that in, in the last part of Exodus too. All right. 21. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How can you have an unbloody atoning sacrifice? Because it was contained. Even if that's true... How can you have an unbloody atoning sacrifice? Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it, 25, verse 25, mark this, highlight this, circle this, memorize it, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Now, I don't need anybody to interpret that for me. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. I don't need a magisterium to interpret that for me. But as it is, he has, pre he has appeared again and again and again at the authority of the priest at the Mass. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, let that sink in for a while, young people. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, why? It's already done. He said it's finished. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, is that consistent with Roman Catholic teaching on the Mass? How many ways could that be different? Now, I think Hebrews made it into, into Trent's count. I mean, you know, I think they, Hebrews was there, I, from what I recall. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm mean, going to go on. When Christ <laughs> offered for all time single, single sacrifice for sins, he sat down with the right hand of God. Yeah, he sat down. Uh, right. Because it was done. Uh, look, at, look at 1 Timothy. Real, real quickly, I, I just want to... 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. Do we need an altar Christus? 1 
1 Timothy 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We don't need another mediator. It's Christ alone. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. And then real quickly in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. What kind of high priest do we have? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Not let us keep going to confession. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How does Jesus alone, Christ alone, how should that affect our prayer? How should that affect how we pray? It's not God give me the strength to do it. It's God will you do it. There's, there's praise for what he has accomplished. And there's thanksgiving for our ability to rest in that accomplishment. There's, there's thankfulness in his power. There's praise and thankfulness and rest in what he has done and accomplished in Christ. It's done. So when we pray... We pray confidently. This is boldly, right? Notice it's boldly, not brazenly. Just, thank you, God, my great vending machine. Give me the vet or whatever. Um, it's boldly because we're not under judgment. I don't have to go crawling to some altar Christus for my merit. What Christ has done, he's done freely and saved me because he loved me. And he saves you because he loves you. It's, there's not a power play here. And it's out of that trust in the goodness and sufficiency of Christ that we are called to live and reflect him that way to one another and to those outside. That's how our prayers are affected. That's how, how does that affect your assurance of salvation? I'm not a leaky bathtub. Spring up, oh well. Right? The psalmist says, The Spirit, I will give you fountains of living water, Jesus said. The assurance of my salvation is also eternal. I don't have to worry about being a leaky bathtub. It's an artesian well of the Holy Spirit in my heart, driving me to repentance and faith in Jesus. How about the motivation to strive for holiness? If it's Christ alone... How about the motivation to strive to look like him because of what he's done for us? The call of Paul again and again and again is be who you are in Christ. He talks about being seated with Christ in heavenly places, the already not yet, being re the, the, the picture that we'll see in Revelation with, with uh, Philip, the reigning on thrones at some future time, some debated way. But that's going to happen because of what Christ has done. Not because I'm awesomely awesome or because of my awesomely awesome faith. It's because of what He's done. 
and He alone has done it. Therefore, knowing where I'm going, knowing who I am already declared to be in Jesus, I want to look like that. I don't want to hang on to the junk. I don't want to look like the pagans who are separated from Christ and without God in the world. I want to reflect who He is. How do we deal with times of personal failure and sin? Do we just sit around and beat ourselves up? Or do we properly grieve that we're not there yet? And then move forward thanking Him that He's already there for us. Yes? There's, uh, there's been times in my life where... Uh, you know how Catholics go to the priest and they confess and they confess well, with the priesthood of the believer and there's a verse that says we confess our sins before God I think I've been um, uh, works based in my theology at times where it's like oh well I, I sinned so I've got to confess this and I've sinned and so I've got to confess this and I better confess this before I die or else you know and so I think we can we can do the exact same thing as them just under the guise of priesthood of the believer. Mm. And that's kind of a dangerous, you know, there's great, there's too much grace, mm. there's too much works, and it's always a... There's a ditch on each side. Mm. But it doesn't, uh, we still should confess. We still need to be operating. And the confession is not so that I have right. salvation, but it's because there's a relationship there with God. And we want to keep short accounts on the relationship. Um, if we're sinning and not having grieving over it and not trying to move forward in holiness, there's a discipline that comes. Not, not wrath, not punishment, but a discipline. I love Nathaniel, but if he keeps forgetting to take out the trash, he's going to lose things, right? right? That's not because he doesn't, that's not because he ceases to be my son, it's because I'm trying to train him to be the man that I want him to be, that, that reflects rightly our family and Christ and the church. So that's a different thing. So I know that that's happening in his heart when he says, Dad, I'm really sorry. I didn't, you know, I'm, I know that's happening because it's a vocalized, and it's good for him to do that because it's vocalizing his training and discipline and what he's doing. So we can go through why do we confess. There's a, there's an, there's a theology out there that says we don't have to. And I think it's very dangerous. To, and, I, and so I don't want to swing that far. But we know that, it, that our confession after we trust Jesus is not saving us, but it is sanctifying us. Right. That, that's the difference. It's an outpouring of a changed heart. It's a natural response of a change. Yeah, the outpouring of a changed heart. Yes. All right. So as countercultural as Christ alone is, and it still is, we're still fighting this battle. We're fighting it on two fronts. Um, even in the day of the Reformers, there was a belief that... that uh, one could attain salvation through nature. Um, so the reformers fought, and we fight on two extremes. One, that Christ, uh, that the, we fight against the idea that Christ is insufficient, uh, so we need our works and participation in rituals to restore ourselves to God's good graces, the, the Catholic mindset, and others, not just Catholics. Second, that Christ is not necessary for there are many roads to God. We see that very prevalent in our society today. So there's, there's, again, there's a ditch on both sides. Christ alone is the answer to that. Our response is the Bible's response recorded in Peter's sermon to the Sanhedrin 
Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, and I would add in no thing else, including governments. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man, mathematically that means no man, comes to the Father but through me. <clears throat> and so I guess the heart question for us is do we trust in the sufficiency of Christ? Is he enough? Any other comments? It's just ten after. We've got ten minutes before Philip even begins. So. Um, I was always wondering where Catholics uh, were going on this doctrine. And like even the apocryphal books aren't enough to get all this new stuff. So um, I watched this three-hour debate that James White did with Mitch Papua mm -hmm. on the uh, Sola Scriptura. And the whole thing was about the fact that Scripture is enough. And uh, not, not that Scripture is inerrant or authoritative or anything, because Catholics absolutely believe that. But um, they also, Philippians 4, 8, and 9, they're like, think of uh, whatever's true, right? And whatever, think on these things. And also, uh, teach these things and what I've taught you or something, or what you've heard from me or something. So from that, they get that oral tradition is just as necessary as written tradition. Mm -hmm. So they believe that this tradition's been passed down from all to now. Um, so that's where they get a lot of this stuff, is just from oral tradition. But that debate's really good if you don't want to waste three hours. And you don't waste three hours of James White debate. It's a, it's a good, it's a good debate. But yeah, the oral tradition uh, leaves open uh, a lot of um, gray area for nonsense. You can't prove it. Now, how do you know it's oral tradition? Right. Things get changed over time. And well, they, they, they say that it's proven because the, because because God uh, is going to keep His church, um, and they believe in faith in the church. And then God wouldn't let the church mess up this doctrine. So, I mean, it's not completely... That's true. Well, yeah, that is true, and that's why we had a reformation. Um, that doesn't mean that churches didn't mess up doctrine. You can read the, the New Testament and yeah. see how Paul and Peter had to go correct wrong right, doctrines right. in the very early church. Yeah, we can certainly spend some time in Corinthians and, and, find, and, and Galatians, and, which would be oddly appropriate. Um, for that. Any, anything else? I think it's interesting with a lot of religions, not just Catholicism, but Mormonism and even, you know, other fringe religions and, and major religions, that one of the biggest things is first they say scripture has been corrupted somehow. Mm -hmm. It's not enough and you need this other book or you need this other prophet or you need this other person to help you interpret it because there's mm -hmm. no way between you and the Spirit of God you can figure out what you're supposed right. to figure out. Um, so that's one component. And then also there's a tendency, and this is the first lie that, you know, humans believed was you can become God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got um, Mormonism teaching that you become a God. You have Catholicism even teaching that if you do all the things right and you can either become a saint who we pray to, just like we pray to God, or a priest or a pope who mm -hmm. is another Christ mm -hmm. and equal to Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, it's just funny seeing how lies 
kind of have the same foundations of let's take away scripture and take mm-hmm. away that truth mm-hmm. and that foundation of truth mm-hmm. so that we can teach you to believe that you are God. And, uh, and it all starts with, did God truly say? Did God really say that? Yeah, yeah is the Bible. Yeah. And that's why Sola Scriptura, Scripture yeah. alone, is such a huge bedrock for, for any of these. Mm-hmm. Is because if we, if we become untethered, then we can go off in all kinds of nonsense. We could we could claim that God is learning things. He's getting better. He's gonna. He's adapting to our choices because free will is just so awesomely awesome that he has to give. Well, I guess I deeded over some of my sovereignty, you know, being God. So I mean, you get all kinds of stuff when you become untethered, and it happens in Protestant circles uh, more and more. It's happening in Protestant circles. And it can happen with us. I mean, you talk about what confession means, and, and that's real easy to have biases and have uh, presuppositions that, that, um, that, that, that kick us off where we need to be and get us distracted. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and pray because it's, you know, not late or anything. We're, we're under grace. <laughs> God, we thank you for Christ and that we can trust him and that he is enough. I pray that you cause us by your spirit to make much of him as we continue through this week. Be with each one here. Be with those who weren't able to be here today. I pray that you would bless us with the grace of loving your son more, striving after him above all else, that we'd worship him in spirit and in truth, and that we'd love Him and act upon it by how we act toward others. Thank you for this group. Thank you for their hunger for Jesus. And I pray that it continues to grow, that you knit us together, continuing to build your church one stone at a time, one heart at a time. I pray for Philip and the next service that you would Open his mouth and speak to your people what your spirit would intend for the church to hear this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all please return your pins to the top of the piano so we have it for next time. Under grace. So Chad tells me, Chad tells me he wants to get some pins that have Exodus 20.